still my soul. Hey everybody, this is Phil. Welcome to our Bible study podcast. At the end of this study, please take the time to subscribe to the Glen Springs Church YouTube channel and check out our website. Also, if you live in the Gainesville, Florida area, we would love to have you visit us in person. For now, let's open up the Heavenly Library and may the words of the Holy Spirit sink deep into our hearts. Thanks for joining us. In every Good morning. Happy Easter. It's good to see you all. We have a pretty day out there. I kind of warned the people sitting over here that if they want to sit in that pew after this week, they got to come to my house. (laughs) So those of you who are going to be taking your pews um, between now and Tuesday is the time frame for doing that. Next week, be reminded that you probably want to bring a chair. And then after that, we'll have a new arrangement in here. So let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're just so humbled as a, a consequence of considering your love. Father, we know that we're unworthy of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. And we tremble before you in your might and your glory. And we delight in the fact that you love us and that you've invited us into relationship with you. Father, help us to see and understand just a small portion of your plan for us and for our lives, for the church and for all of humanity, that all might come to know you and to be in relationship with you. Father, help us as we go through our lives that we might recognize the promptings of the Spirit that will help us to take advantage of the opportunities we have to share Christ with those that we encounter. Father, I just consider it such a blessing to be here today and to be a part of this family. I ask now that you would bless the teachers and each of the students. Give us a very special sense of your presence and of your love. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we've worked hard to get to where we are today. We're starting Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 1. If everybody wants to go there, we're going low-tech today, so we won't have any displays, and I won't have trouble reading the screen in the back. So as we begin, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some of the men from Judah came. Just a little information with regard to when and where we are at this point. As he's talking about the month of Chislev, this would normally be November, December time of a year. And he's talking about being in the capital, Susa. There was more than one capital in the Persian Empire. This was one of the areas. And if you can think in terms of the distance from Jerusalem, we're talking probably 850 miles. 
that distance to the east from Jerusalem. And so Persia, when they took over the Babylonian Empire, they pretty much set up their capitals in similar locations, Babylon and then Susa. But what happened is that their uh, empire extended even beyond that which was the Babylonian Empire. But what we've got happening dynamically in that time frame is we've got the Greek uh, nations are beginning to encroach on the western portion of the Persian Empire. So there's this intrigue going on with regard to who's going to be dominant. And ultimately, Greek does become a dominant force, but right now, they're just beginning to encroach, um, uh, and there's battles going on and things like that. So Gerald pointed out that history pretty much uh, reinforces the idea that it was in the Persians' interest to have established somewhere in the Western perimeter a strong uh, safeguard portion, a nation there that would be in alliance with them, you know, basically having paying tribute to them, but they're there as sort of a buffer from the from the advance from the West. And so it is definitely in Persians' interest that there be a stronger nation there. So that I think is is important to see. When we talk about the 20th year, it's talking about the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign. So we're at about, well, we had Ezra going in the seventh year of Artaxerxes' reign at about 438 or 458. And so we're now about 445, 13 years later, 445. So Ezra left 13 years earlier. He went and he has been doing and presenting the word of the Lord to the people in Judah and in Jerusalem. And his influence has been there now for 13 years. So... As far as we know, and it's probably reasonable to assume, Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. He doesn't know exactly what's happening there. His brother and some other people that are from Judah have come to Susa, and they come into his presence. And so he asks them the question. I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity about Jerusalem. Those expressions there sort of give us an idea of their attitude toward the captivity. Escaped and survived. So even though they've been there for more than 70 years, um, at this point, many more than 70 years, probably 150 years since the original pulling out of, of the people, they still look at it as you know, surviving the captivity. Um, and, uh, and he asked them about the people and about the city. So the, the two questions. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the cap- captivity are in great distress and reproach. The, a number of different translations there would be trouble and shame uh, in great evil and reproach, uh, great affliction. So as you look at, he's trying to get a read on what's happening with those people. What is their condition? 
This is not a favorable expression as we're looking at that. The second one, reproach and shame, is they, they have no reason to have any kind of pride for who they are and where they are, and they themselves are distressed. As I was beginning to look at this, you know, I sort of looked at ourselves and our culture, and I realized there's a lot of people that are distressed around me today. I see it all the time. And one thing about people in distress is they tend to be more open to a godly solution for their circumstance. When things are going great and, and you know, life is high and, and, and you're being, you know, feel like you're blessed and everything like that, you don't have a lot of motivation to change. But when, when you are in distress, then you actually are going to be more open to the appeal of someone coming to you and saying, there is a source of truth and of peace and of salvation. And so as we look at our world today, we find people in distress. Now, what's going to happen is he's considering these people in their distress, in their distress and their shame and reproach. And uh, so that's about the people. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So that's the report he gets. His response is, is pretty dramatic. When I f heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, oh, I beseech you, O God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness of those who love him and keep his commands, commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying to you before before you now day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the, of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you have been scattered and were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to a place where I have chosen to call my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand, O oh Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servants successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was cupbearer for the king. Whew. That's quite a prayer. We're going to break that down a little bit unpack it a little bit and see the elements that, he, that he's using there. When we read that prayer and then we go to the next verse, 
chapter 2, verse 1. And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 12th, 20th year of Artaxerxes, that wine was before the king. I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, the way this reads, how long do you think it was between when he got this report about Jerusalem and he comes before the king with the wine? Just, just the way it reads. Those of you that know the history here, but what does it sound like? He mourned for days, right? So a week, maybe two weeks. In reality, we've got a four-month time frame because when you go from Kislev to the month of Nisan, it's somewhere between the November-December time frame and April. So what the reality of the situation is, this man has mourned and prayed and fasted and contemplated this opportunity that he's going to have in the month of Nisan to come before the king for about four months. So this, as we, as we read, when he does come before the king, it's going to be fairly clear that he's thought about what it is he's going to be asking because he asked for additional letters and he's, he's accompanied by officers of the army and, and these types of things. So this was not a fairly you know, short time frame when he's just, okay, I got this news, I mourned for a few days and I fasted for a few days. We actually have about a four month time frame here where he's basically had this burden for the people. And he's, this burden is upon him. And his reaction, you can tell by his reaction that literally, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. That, you know, pull on his heart, that burden that God has placed on him for those people He's, he's, he's been aware Jerusalem's there and the people are there, but this report coming to him from his brother and these other people just cuts him to the heart. And, and now he has this burden that basically he's got to figure out, what am I going to do? And so he formulates a plan. But as we look at the prayer, um, it never hurts for us to sort of Break this down and see what it is. As he starts the prayer, O Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God, recognize who God is. Give him the glory and the praise and the honor that he deserves. I have something on my heart that I want to ask of you, but first I want to recognize who you are. First, I want to acknowledge and affirm that who you are, that you are the God of, of creation and the awesome God who preserves covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commands. So you start with who he is, recognizing and acknowledging God for who he is. That's where Nehemiah starts. And then... Um, as we go forth here, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open. It's an appeal to 
I need you to hear me. I need you to listen. I need to know that you have heard my petition before you. Of your servant, which I am praying before you day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel. I'm, this prayer is going for this whole nation. For what I've discovered, the condition they're in, the distress they're in, for all of them. Then he goes right into confessing the sins. I recognize we're not worthy. We have sinned against you again and again, and we are in the circumstance we're in because of our sin, because we fail to follow your commands, before, because we fail to follow and, re, and, and retain the covenant that you have entered into with us. It's our fault. And then he goes on and even acknowledges me and my father's house have sinned. None of us are free from this guilt from the consequences of the sin. He takes on personal responsibility for even the sins of the nation that brought them into the exile. I and my father's house not kept your commandments, nor ordinance, nor member. Um, now, once again, he's, he's asking God, remember the word you commanded your service, servant Moses. Okay, I'm going to allude back to what you've promised already. And so that he's, he's basically saying, this is what you said to Moses. If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me, okay, we find ourselves, we were unfaithful and we've been scattered. Now the promise is, if you will return to me, and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of the heaven, I will gather them up and, they, and will bring them to the place where I have chosen my name to dwell. Okay? So he's reminding God, he's reminding himself in his own mind, this is a promise that God has made. I'm affirming this promise in my own mind and I'm presenting it to you, God, this is a promise that you made to the people. Now, it's conditional. They have to return. They have to um, do here. Let's just quickly go to Second Chronicles, um, verse 7, starting in verse 12. This is the promise that, that uh, God made to Solomon after the temple was complete. Now then, the Lord appeared to Solomon at night, and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. I will shut up the heavens so that there is no rain. And if the command and if I shut up the heavens so there is no rain or if I command the locusts to devour the land and I send pestilence on my people and my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, 
Now my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house. My name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there in perpetuity. So as Nehemiah is looking at where are we going to find this restoration? Where are we going to find this promise fulfilled? God has promised that that temple that was built, that's where he's going to dwell. That's where he's going to listen to his people. And so this burden on his heart, basically he comes to God and he recognizes that there is a promise. There is hope. There is possibility for these people for revival and for restoration. So once again, um, in verse 10, they are your servants and your people redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Um, once again, I beseech you to have an ear that will hear. So that, as we look at that prayer, there's so many elements in there that help us to recognize what is in Nehemiah's heart and his understanding of God and who he is and the promises that he's made to the people. So as we continue in chapter two, and it came about in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes that wine was before him and I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I have not been sad in his presence, so the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? There is nothing, this is nothing but sadness of heart. Okay, before we get into this particular text, this position is, is sort of an unusual position with regard to the um, court. As we looked earlier in Ezra, we had the king doing his edict with his seven advisors. This man, in his position as cupbearer for the king, is a very critical person with regard to the kingdom. There's numerous ideas about what his responsibilities and duties were, but who thinks they know of one thing that he was required to do? He used to taste the wine. Why would he be tasting the wine? <laughs> okay, he's going to be testing the stuff for the poison. He's going to be doing food, wine, whatever's necessary in order to assure the king that what he's about to take, intake, is safe. So there's a number of different descriptions as to what characteristics would be required of this person. One would be he has to be trustworthy. Oddly enough, another one that some of the commentators brought forth was he was to be handsome. That he's going to be in the court, he's going to be at the table, all the banquets, all the feasts, and everything like that. He has to have a good physical presence. He has to be intelligent. He has to have language skills. And so there's, there's a number of things that this person has been groomed up in order to fulfill the position he's in that requires a great deal of responsibility beyond just tasting food and tasting wine. He has to have a presence that basically contributes to the glory of the king. 
He can't be a shabby looking person because he's there in the presence of all these other dignitaries and, and officials and, and all that sort of thing. So this is the person that we're talking about. He's had considerable training in order to be in the position he's in. He's, I think he must have considerable financial resources because once he becomes governor, he's actually underwriting a lot of the normal uh, responsibilities that would have been paid for his having the operation of being a governor. And so this is a man of, of a considerable position within this empire. And so as he comes before the king, and, and, and this is not surprising. How many of you have had to fake a smile? <laughs> All right, I'm not alone. I don't feel like doing this but I have to be there and I have to put on this happy face. I have to look like everything's okay in spite of what's happening in my life. He couldn't pull it off. He comes before the king and it's totally inappropriate. The king knows he's not sick because he wouldn't be allowed to go in the presence of the king had he had any physical illness. So it can't be anything to do with your, your health. This has to be a sadness of the heart. I don't know, for four months, he's been coming probably in all likelihood before the king, but on this day, he's petitioned the Lord. He's come before the, he, he's, he's made this, as we look at verse 11, oh, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer your servant. The prayer your servant delights to have to revere your name, to make your servant successful today. So he's there before the king. Grant him compassion before this, grant, and grant him compassion before this man. So this is nothing but sadness of heart. The critical time has come. He's prayed. Then I was very much afraid. Okay. <laughs> this is huge. When we look at what happened with Zerubbabel and the original edict from Cyrus, and then uh, Ezra apparently approached the king at some point, but he creates this edict and says, all right, anybody that wants to go, join in on these efforts. Nehemiah is sort of stepping out here in order to... Um, Make a request to the king. So I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed with fire? Okay, there it is. My heart, my passion, my city is in ruins. I can't put on a happy face. I can't act anymore like everything's okay because it's not. The people are in distress and in reproach and the city walls are in ruins and the gates are burned with fire. And the king said to me, what you, would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I've heard a number of different expressions for this Prayer. I've heard popcorn prayers, a pew, 
arrow prayer, shooting it straight up to God. But it's one of those situations where I'm sure he didn't keep the king waiting for the amount of time it took to do that prayer on the page before we were just looking at. Probably just a affirmation of, God, you've put me here, and perhaps for such a time as this, that I might be the one that comes before the king and petitions on behalf of my people and my city. Whatever that prayer was, his fear is overcome. He's then able to say, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Two ifs in there. (laughs) If it's your pleasure, and if I have found favor in your sight. Okay? You know me. You know who I am. And if I have a favorable position with you, then grant this request. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? Apparently he responded to that so that it pleased the king to send me. And I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they <clears throat> may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams and gates for the fortresses, uh, which is by the temple for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. So as he's making this appeal to, to the king, he's already thought, what am I going to need in order to accomplish this? What, you know, obviously I'm going to be traveling almost 900 miles and I'm going to need certain things. And one of them is I'm going to have to have letters for the provinces along the way that allow me to continue this travel. That he's not getting an edict like the first two that goes throughout the kingdom. What he's got are letters that are here. And then once he gets there, he's going to need certain resources. Chances are that which they're going to need to rebuild the walls were just knocked down. So a lot of the materials that are going to be required for the structure of the walls are already there and available, but the gates have been burned. We need new new timber. We're going to need this. In order to accomplish this, we're going to have to have these resources in order to, to complete this project. So he's considered carefully what it is that he's asking of the king and what it is that's going to be required when he gets there in order to um, affect this work. Uh, Verse 9, Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Okay, this is something Ezra hadn't considered asking for, but the king here obviously already provided that. So not only, and we don't have this 
large numbers of people coming necessarily. We do have Nehemiah. He has servants that are coming with him because they're referred to later that they're part of his household operation. He's got servants that are with him. And then he's got these armed forces that, that are representative of the Persian Empire that are coming with him, officers of the army and horsemen. So this entourage is traveling secure. They've got letters of passage. And then he comes and he gives the letters to these governors of the provinces beyond the river. When they're talking about beyond the river, there's a certain point at which Judah and Jerusalem is included in that, but there's other areas in the territory which are governed by these. We're going to have reference to a few here. Some of them are in Samaria, but others, others within the territory that Judah and Jerusalem are setting within. And so... When Sanballat, verse 10, and the Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about it, they were very displeased. It, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Okay. Interestingly, he, he's come. His letters have given him passage, but doesn't really mention in here that they're upset about the walls being built or the city being addressed. They're, they're concerned about the welfare of the sons of Israel. They're probably not at all unhappy that the people of Israel are in distress and reproach. That gives them an, a, a, an authority and a power over them that... <clears throat> that They've, one of the things that's been, that God has been attempting to do through all of these efforts is to create this nation once again that has an allegiance to him and has an identity and a spiritual identity and a strength that can only come through this association with God, with living by his commandments and living within that covenant. They are going to be blessed. And so... They're now in this condition of distress and reproach. We learn later that there's been a famine going on. They're not blessed. There's, their circumstance is not good. But when you think about distress, that can be physical. But what more than that, more than physical distress can really tear a society down? Mental and emotional distress. I don't have confidence. I'm not sure that God is hearing my prayers. I'm not sure that he's listening. The, as Nehemiah is coming, the project is to build the walls. The reality of the effort would be to rebuild the people. The Lord is in his holy temple. Again, thanks for listening. If you live in North Central Florida or you're just passing through, we would love to have you visit us at the Glen Springs Road Church of Christ. Also, check out our website, glenspringschurch.com. 
You can learn more about our church family and how to contact us. Until next time, God bless. Keep silence, peace.